Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Oscar Wilde. Now let's return to our story about Oscar Wilde. The case of Wilde versus the Marcus of Queensbury began on April 3, 1895, at the Old Bailey's Central Criminal Court. The courtroom was packed to the rafters with various court officials, the press, and a tiny sliver of the public jammed into the only gallery that permitted their presence. Sir Edward Clark began Wilde's case for the prosecution by focusing on an overview of Wilde's career, his family, and his increasingly hostile interaction with John Douglas. Oscar Wilde was then summoned to testify and was asked mostly about his specific interactions with the Marcus. Much of his testimony greeted with laughter, especially the line, I don't know what the Queensberry rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot straight. Only Queensberry remained unamused, looking on grimly. Then Edward Carson, defense counsel and a former classmate at Trinity College, began his cross-examination. Initially, Wilde was able to continue to respond to any potentially damaging issues by deflecting them with humor. When asked if two poems written by Douglas for an Oxford literary journal entitled The Chameleon were immoral, Wilde replied, worse, they are poorly written. When asked about a passage in Dorian Gray about one actor's wild adoration of a male much younger than himself, and if Wilde had ever felt such an emotion, Oscar replied, I have never given adoration to anyone but myself. Again, such witty retorts greeted with gales of laughter. But Carson then switched gears from literature to behavior, raising specific allegations about Oscar's interactions with various men, who were named even more specific allegations as to the sexual nature of Wilde's conduct. Wilde repeatedly denied each and every assertion, but the sheer volume of these accusations was both troubling and foreboding. Finally, court was adjourned, but not before the press was presented with enough material to propel the story to a national sensation. The questions resumed the next day, with Carson now focusing on the myriad younger men considered to be part of Wilde's social circle over the years, the questioning frequently revolving over whether Wilde kissed a particular individual or presented others with cigarette cases. When Carson got Wilde to proclaim that he would never kiss a specific individual because the boy was too ugly, Carson pounced reinforcing the idea that Wilde might have behaved differently if he was attracted enough. Then it was time for Carson to produce his own witnesses, but before he did, he gave a lengthy opening statement on what he was prepared to introduce, including a witness named Alfred Wood, who would describe how Wilde had adopted filthy and immoral practices with him, the statement sending a shockwave through the courtroom. Other specifics about immoralities at the Savoy Hotel were also raised, and Carson was just getting warmed up when court was adjourned for the second day. Wilde's attorney, Sir Edward Clark, had heard enough. 
The next morning, he told Wilde in a hastily scheduled pre-trial conference that if the trial progressed along these lines and the defense produced all of the witnesses and evidence that they were already mentioning, Queensberry would certainly be acquitted of the libel, and Wilde might even be arrested in open court. He urged that Wilde allow him to attempt to negotiate a consent to a verdict of not guilty based on literary grounds, as well as a promise that the matter would be dropped by both sides. Wilde is much disheartened by the cost of four more days of trial, as well as the evidence he was facing, agreed. But Clark was unable to secure such an outcome. In fact, the Marcus was officially found not guilty by the jury, awarded costs, and nothing was even discussed concerning a live and let live outcome. In fact, another of Queensberry's attorneys immediately forwarded the trial transcript and witnesses' statements concerning their involvement with Wilde to the government's director of prosecutions, requesting that justice be done. This official then involved the Home Secretary and Attorney General, the Marcus of Queensberry's connection to Roseberry, making this a potentially politically sensitive case. The liberal government, not wishing to be perceived as aiding in a cover-up if they refused to prosecute Wilde, acted swiftly, the Home Secretary requesting that a warrant be issued for Wilde's arrest and that he be prevented from leaving the country. The Marcus of Queensberry, cheered when the verdict was read in the courtroom, now piled on, allegedly sending a message to Wilde which read, If the country allows you to leave, all the better for the country. But if you take my son with you, I will follow you wherever you go and shoot you. Although again told to leave the country by, among others, Robert Ross, he decided to stay. Already the now scandalous developments were having a personal impact on Wilde. His name removed from the two theater playbills where his plays were being presented, attendance dwindling with each successive day. Wilde holed up in Bosey's room at the Cadigan Hotel, drinking wine spritzers, accompanied by a small entourage. His wife, lately chronically ill with a malady that defied diagnosis, was staying with her aunt, and Wilde sent Robbie Ross over to brief her on the latest developments, not able to bear the thought of handling this himself. Tearfully, she encouraged Ross to implore Wilde to leave. But Wilde ignored this and other similar entreaties, awaiting the inevitable, which occurred at 6.30 on the evening of April 6th. Charged with gross indecency with other male persons, he was booked and spent the night in a jail cell. Alfred Taylor, an occasional host of parties at his apartment that included both wild and young men, was also booked and charged with the same crime, no doubt probably implicated by information supplied by the Marcus of Queensberry. At a preliminary hearing the next day, for the first time, the actual witnesses promised by Carson in the first trial were produced. They provided graphic accounts of their interactions with Wilde and were supported by various employees of several hotels who corroborated these accounts. Following this proceeding, and with the necessity for additional hearings, Wilde and Taylor were denied bail, the judge stating that, there were no worse crimes than that which the prisoners are charged, despite gross indecency being merely a misdemeanor. These additional proceedings left no doubt as to the guilt of Wilde as far as the public was concerned, and a hellfire of condemnation ensued both in the tabloid press and within the literary establishment. One highbrow publication went so far as to say that the entire English-speaking world owed the Marcus of Queensberry a debt of gratitude for the destruction of the high priest of the decadence. 
although Wilde was able to pay for an upgraded cell that allowed him his own food, books, and the ability to see visitors, many of his closest friends and associates fled, including Robbie Ross, who received a subpoena to testify against Wilde, an unthinkable prospect. Only Douglas stuck around and frequently visited Oscar in jail. One other individual was notably absent from the visitors list, Constance Wilde. She was already being advised by attorneys that she and her children must abandon Oscar and avoid getting caught up in the inevitable debt and scandal that would accompany any conviction. And the debtors were also piling on with judgments, getting bailiffs to set up an April 24th auction of the tight street contents and furnishings, a disorganized affair that emptied the house of anything of value at rock-bottom prices. On the day before, Wilde was conveyed to the forbidding Newgate Prison to await his trial, which would begin on April 26th. Finally, at the request of his family, Douglas headed to France. Taylor and Wilde would stand trial simultaneously, either for committing acts of gross indecency or conspiracy to procure the commission of such acts, which pertained to Taylor. For days, the jury heard what for the time period was absolutely lurid and graphic details of sexual debauchery. Following that, Sir Edward Clark tried to clean up what was left of his defense and skillfully pointed out that most of the witnesses testifying against Wilde were blackmailers and scoundrels, but unfortunately could not also mention that they were being paid by John Douglas to be there. As far as the chambermaids and butlers who provided testimony about the various stains on bedsheets that were repeatedly described, Clark maintained that they could have come from any number of sources and didn't prove anything. Wilde then returned to the witness stand. Clark had him acknowledge dining and socializing with many of the individuals named by the prosecution, but also denying anything improper had occurred. Cross-examined by Crown Prosecutor Charles Gill, Wilde was then confronted with two sonnets written by Lord Alfred Douglas, the second that concluded with the sentence, I am the love that dared not speak its name. Gill then asked Wilde, what is the love that dared not speak its name? Was this unnatural love, a Victorian euphemism for homosexuality? Wilde delivered a lengthy, almost theatrical response that included the words, It is in this century misunderstood, so much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name, and on account of it I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of affection. Contemporary accounts indicate that Wilde's words were met with loud approval and applause from the public gallery, mixed in with a few raspberries. In fact, Wilde's impromptu speech may not have been as spontaneous as it appeared. He actually relished the opportunity to challenge conventional attitudes and defiantly confront the status quo in the most dramatic of circumstances, a moment he had anticipated for many years. Although Wilde's brilliant rhetoric might have been the highlight of the trial, his attorney, Sir Edward Clark, also provided a closing argument that was remarkable and also greeted with applause, again urging jurors to ignore the shrill hysteria of the press and the mob and to understand that convicting such an accomplished man of letters would leave a permanent stain on society that would eventually be regrettable. Although this moving and brilliant summary was also greeted with applause, Wilde believed that he would quickly be convicted writing to Bosey that evening that even if he went to prison, he hoped that Douglas's love would sustain him through that ordeal. After a three-hour summary by the judge, the jury was sent to deliberate. 
What was expected to be a quick resolution and a guilty verdict did not occur. By the end of the day, the jury came back into the courtroom and announced that they were unable to reach a verdict on the most serious of the charges. The prosecutor, Gill, immediately maintained that the case would be retried, and Wilde was at first denied bail. Eventually, bail in the amount of 5,000 pounds was granted, and much of the money put up by a wealthy and socially aware Anglican clergyman who had never met Wilde but felt the press coverage to be unfair and prejudicial. After being hounded out of several hotels by the ever-vindictive Marcus of Queensbury, who personally showed up wherever Wilde, now a notorious reprobate, attempted to check in, Oscar turned to the only refuge that he hoped would not turn him away, his mother's house. His brother lived there now, too, with his latest wife, and the main focus of the home was alcohol. Willie Wilde, now a hopeless alcoholic, and himself a social outcast. The government was clearly determined to obtain a conviction in the retrial, assigning Solicitor General Frank Lockwood as the lead prosecutor, Lockwood one of the most senior legal officials in the nation. Clark was able to sever Wilde's case from Taylor's, but this move backfired when on May 21st, Taylor was convicted of gross indecency with two young men that had also been named as involved with Wilde. The jury hung on his procurement charge, which was dismissed, and Taylor's sentence was delayed until after Wilde's case could be heard. While awaiting his own trial, Wilde was served with a legal demand for costs associated with the Marcus of Queensbury's legal expenses, another 680-pound headache. In this case, a friend gifted him 1,000 pounds to handle such emergencies, but Wilde was still deeply in the hole. While public interest was somewhat diminished, the fireworks in the courtroom continued. The presiding judge, Justice Wills, created his own drama when he threw out the evidence concerning at least one allegation, ruling that it could not be corroborated, an indication that he might be sympathetic towards Wilde and the defense. But much of the evidence concerning Wilde's alleged behavior with various younger men was admitted and Lockwood's closing argument, as well as the judge's much more negatively focused summation, left little doubt that Oscar would not escape conviction. The night before the final day of the trial, he gathered any friends and relatives he could for what he called a farewell. One conspicuously absent member of his entourage was Lord Alfred Douglas, who had joined Robert Ross and others in French exile, supposedly to avoid any court-ordered testimony, but also encouraged by his family to get as far away from the glare of scandal as possible. After the judge's charge, the jury retired at 3.30 in the afternoon. They returned once briefly to ask a question, but at 5.30 p.m. verdicts on all of the counts were reached, and Wilde stood to hear his fate. Guilty on all counts, with one exception. Despite Clark's attempt to postpone sentencing, Justice Wills was unrelenting. Before passing sentence, he made a scathing statement that left no doubt as to his own personal perspective. Oscar Wilde and Alfred Taylor, the crime of which you have been convicted is so bad that one has to put stern restraint upon oneself to prevent oneself from describing in language which I would rather not use the sentiments which must rise to the breast of every man of honor who has heard the details of these two terrible trials. That the jury have arrived at a correct verdict in this case, I cannot persuade myself to entertain the shadow of a doubt, and I hope at all events, that those who sometimes imagine that a judge is half-hearted in the cause of decency and morality because he takes care 
to no prejudice shall enter into the case may see that this is consistent at least with the common sense of indignation at the horrible charges brought home to both of you. It is no use for me to address you. People who can do these things must be dead to all sense of shame, and one cannot hope to produce any effect upon them. It is the worst case I have ever tried. That you, Taylor, kept a kind of male brothel, it is impossible to doubt, and that you, Wilde, have been the center of a circle of extensive corruption of the most hideous kind among young men, it is equally impossible to doubt. The judge then added that although the sentence he would pass was the maximum allowable under the law, that he felt it was totally inadequate for such a transgression. With that, he sentenced Taylor and Wilde to two years in prison under hard labor and refused to allow Wilde to speak, Oscar immediately being taken down by court bailiffs. In the immediate aftermath of the trial, the London press mostly greeted the verdict as both just and appropriate. Wild, a dissolute elitist who got what he deserved after violating the mores of decent society. For Wilde himself, the situation only became progressively darker. Held in temporary confinement, he was stripped of all personal clothing and possessions and issued the plain garb of a convict, which he must have found especially hideous. He eventually arrived at Pentonville Prison, his permanent assignment, where he slept on a wooden plank bed walked on a grueling treadmill for much of the day, lived in solitary confinement, and ate a diet of crude porridge, bread, and occasional meat that immediately induced diarrhea. As pipes and toilets were non-existent, he and all prisoners were forced to use a small tin receptacle to relieve themselves. And confined to their cells at night, these units were emptied the next morning, creating a horrific and unsanitary environment. Typically, he was not permitted visits or even letters for the first three months of his confinement. Although deeply distressed personally over Wilde's fate, Lord Alfred Douglas stayed in France, his expenses picked up by his mother, his self-imposed exile also taken on the advice of his family lawyer, who suggested he might be prosecuted if he returned to Britain. Wilde was no longer enthralled with Douglas, believing that, among other things, the younger man was greatly responsible for his current predicament, and desperate to not lose access to his children and to some degree his wife, he became determined to reconcile, if at all possible. In fact, when an exception was made by a sympathetic warden, the first visitor allowed to see Wilde was Otho Holland, Constance Wilde's brother. Wilde begged him to convey this message to his wife, who had fled with her sons to Switzerland and was on the verge of divorcing Wilde. In September, when Wilde was finally able to write letters, his first communication went to Constance, who responded immediately, reassuring him that his sons still loved him and missed him and that she would not divorce him. She also wrote to the warden of Wandsworth Prison, Wilde's newly assigned and less harsh penitentiary, requesting to see her husband. Eventually, prison visits were granted to Wilde, and each visitor came away with the same impression. Prison immediately turned him into a depressive, malnourished, chronically ill shell of himself. Now formally bankrupt, he even stated that he wished he could die. Worse was yet to come. Faint from dysentery, Wilde fell during mandatory chapel services and seriously injured his right ear. Even prison authorities were alarmed enough to transfer him again to Reading Prison, presumably a less harsh environment. But during his transfer, Wilde endured what he later described as the worst moment of his incarceration and possibly his life. 
He was transferred in prison garb and manacled, the route to Reading from Wandworth requiring a rail connection at Clapham Junction. There he was forced to wait on the main platform for over a half hour, a crowd quickly recognizing Wilde and mocking and jeering him, one individual actually spitting in his face, while the warder accompanying Oscar did nothing to diffuse the hostility. His wife was allowed to visit him in February of 1886, providing the shocking news that his mother died on February 3rd. Constance was now living in Italy and was outwardly pleasant, even reassuring about the future. She even offered to provide him with an allowance upon his release, and even an inheritance should she predecease him, a not unthinkable occurrence, as Constance Wilde remained in habitually poor health. In May, Wilde marked one year behind bars. His condition so deteriorated that Frank Harris attempted an official campaign to attempt to get Wilde out before the end of his official sentence, to no avail, despite an official inquiry that concluded that Wilde was not experiencing any extraordinary physical or mental issues. This inquiry did recommend that Wilde be granted both additional books and even writing materials, a development that had long-term artistic implications. Since his incarceration, Wilde had been unable to produce any artistic output of any kind. But the execution, by hanging, of a young soldier for the murder of his wife on July 7th resonated deeply with Wilde. This and a change of wardens to the compassionate and progressive thinking James Nelson improved the prisoner's physical and mental outlook to the extent that he began to feel more artistically inspired. He began to write what initially was a lengthy letter to Lord Alfred Douglas and ultimately became a kind of philosophical discourse. At this point, Wilde clearly felt it necessary to make Douglas understand that Wilde felt him culpable for the terrible predicament that resulted in his imprisonment. Whether Wilde ever meant to send it remains historically unclear, but the effort allowed him to release a lot of the negative emotion that previously had no outlet. If his immediate environment was looking up, his interaction with his wife was hitting a rough patch, her attorneys interfering with her previously conciliatory perspective. He was essentially forced to sign away any custodial rights to his children, although Constance did provide for ongoing financial support, conditional upon Wilde's ability to avoid immoral misconduct. Clearly, any resumption of a relationship with Alfred Douglas fell under that heading, but as his release date approached, assurances from Frank Harris and Robert Ross that many of his friends and associates intended that he was financially secure upon his release was a relief. But this perspective proved overly optimistic when in early May of 1897, an embarrassed Ross had to inform him that none of these funds had materialized, including anything from the Douglas family, Percy Douglas again specifically walking back any promises from long ago. At least Oscar was able to scrape up some modest amounts, including a few pounds forwarded by his wife, who was sympathetic enough to ensure that he did not exit prison penniless. With prison authorities wanting to avoid a media circus at Reading, Wilde was secretly released to friends who covertly brought a carriage into the prison courtyard at Pentonville and whisked Wilde away to the home of Stuart Headlam. Although overjoyed enough to see all of the well-wishers who greeted him at Headlam's house, Wilde knew he could not remain in Britain. He finally boarded the night boat to Dieppe, which was met by both Robert Ross and Reggie Turner at four in the morning. Disembarking, he handed Ross a packet that contained the lengthy letter that Wilde had written while in prison. 
an indication of how much he trusted Ross, who had served as essentially his literary aide even before Oscar was incarcerated. Turner and Ross stayed in Wilde's modest hotel for a week, but soon left. Wilde so radioactive at that point that both would have lost their family allowances if it became known that they were associating with Wilde. Oscar also decided to quickly leave Dieppe, a favorite British tourist destination where he would also be too conspicuous, and resettled in the small village of Berneval sur le Mer. Here he would correspond with his wife, begging for some degree of forgiveness and suggesting that they meet. Constance was non-specifically agreeable, which only frustrated Wilde. He wanted definite reassurance that he would remain part of his children's lives. He also received letters from Lord Alfred Douglas, acknowledging that Wilde must now hate him, but reiterating his love. Situated in Paris, Bosey begged for a face-to-face meeting, but Wilde put him off. Instead of subtlety, Douglas began sending letters that were increasingly critical. Additionally, his London contacts told Wilde that the Marcus of Queensbury was threatening to shoot both of them if the two men were seen in public for the vindictive John Douglas, not an idle threat. Knowing that any reconciliation with Alfred Douglas meant the end of any relationship, financial and otherwise, with Constance, for the moment, Wilde kept his emotional distance. Wilde was also determined to resume his literary career, believing that the execution that occurred while he was in Reading Prison would make an interesting foundation for an epic poem. This became the Ballad of Reading Goal, which included the stanza, Some do the deed with many tears, some without a sigh, for each man kills the thing he loves, yet each man does not die. It would be the only literary effort Wilde would complete after emerging from prison, and he expected that the American press would pay top dollar for this effort. One thing that he did not expect was the news that his wife was now suffering from a paralysis that was crippling, most likely multiple sclerosis that was never diagnosed in her lifetime. This development shelved any possibility of a personal reconciliation and possibly prompted Wilde, essentially without even the prospect of any constant companionship, to meet up with Lord Alfred Douglas in Rouen at the end of August. Unfortunately, their reunion was so successful that both men began contemplating running off to Naples, the consequences be damned. Robert Ross and various other associates and friends of Wilde soon heard about this development and were all uniformly dismayed. Wilde was literally living off his wife's allowance, funds that would be jeopardized if the news of this rekindled relationship with Bosey became known to her, and especially her attorneys. Even so, he needed to borrow money just to get to Naples by train, leaving this important fact out of any discussions he had about his reasons for heading to Italy. Douglas always brought out Wilde's most self-destructive behavior. They ran up a huge bill at a luxury hotel upon arrival. Douglas initially promising to contribute money that was to come from his family. Wilde's mail was forwarded, including a letter from Constance, inviting him to visit her in Genoa, where she now lived despite the children's absence at boarding school. But it was too late for that. Wilde had already thrown in with Bosey. And when his lukewarm response indicated that he was in Naples but would be unavailable, she immediately suspected that he was there with Douglas, his previous enthusiasm having disappeared. She fired off a letter demanding specifically to know whether he was ensconced with who she referred to as that appalling individual. Robert Ross and Reggie Turner did know who he was with and already were expressing alarm at what everyone understood would result in financial disaster. 
Wilde weakly countered with a rationalization that he was in love and really had no choice. Eventually, Constance did find out about his exact circumstances, and after he deflected her demands that he terminate the relationship and leave Naples, she cut off his modest weekly allowance. Wilde scraped together money from calling in various previous loans to friends and selling the rights to a libretto that he maintained he would complete with Douglas's participation. Paying four months' rent in advance from the libretto proceeds, Wilde and Douglas moved to a villa in nearby Posilipo, a lovely location, until it became obvious that their house was infested with rats. Their servants diligently exterminated the creatures, but it was not a good omen. Wilde set to work on finalizing and marketing the Ballad of Redding Goal, another project he felt was economically promising, while Douglas worked on sonnets and the proposed libretto. Despite the tension of the outside world, initially they enjoyed each other's company. However, they also took full advantage of paid dalliances with local young men, behavior that Wilde previously acknowledged was self-destructive and something upon leaving prison he vowed never to repeat. Money quickly became a perpetual concern, especially when the silence surrounding any American interest in his latest prison poem became deafening, and Bosey had little tolerance for scrimping, Angered by their economic insecurity and understanding firsthand that any ability of Wilde to duplicate his previous income via playwriting was a thing of the past. When attorneys formally notified Wilde that his allowance was terminated by Constance and Bosey also received a letter from his mother informing him that she also intended to cut him off financially if he continued living with Wilde, it was clear that they would have to separate. At this point, their relationship was so dreadful and unpleasant that for Wilde, it was probably a relief. Douglas did feel guilty enough about deserting a broke Oscar Wilde to coax his mother into sending some substantial cash if they promised in writing to not live under the same roof. By now, even Robert Ross, a most faithful and devoted associate, had severed his relationship with Wilde. By February 1898, Wilde was back in Paris, the only bright spot in his life, the publication and successful sales of the book-sized edition of The Ballad of Redding Goal, published with a pseudonym, but immediately understood to be composed by Wilde. The book eventually sold 5,000 copies, an outstanding achievement, especially for a social leper. In Paris, Wilde spent much of his time in cafes and restaurants, wanting to continue his creative momentum after the successful publication of his poem. He spent much of his time hitting up any acquaintances for modest sums and cut down on his own expenses by moving into a modest left-bank hotel, the Hotel d'Alsace, where the proprietor took a kindly perspective towards Wilde's habit of not paying his bills. Although his wife also restored a modest allowance of £10 a month upon hearing of his break with Douglas, Wilde received the news that she died on April 7, 1898 after a botched operation to relieve her paralysis. She was buried in Genoa, her gravestone using her newly assumed name of Holland, with no mention of Oscar Wilde. Alfred Douglas was also living in Paris, and the two men saw a great deal of each other, but without the previous passion of pre-Naples interaction. With age, Douglas was even more self-absorbed than ever, spending most of his time gambling and losing at the racetrack. Wilde kept up the appearances of literary work, reviewing the typescript of his plays, the importance of being earnest and an ideal husband for publication and book form. 
In actuality, a description of a typical day in the life of Oscar in the last months of his life was provided by his generous innkeeper, Jean Duporier. Wilde usually woke up around noon and had a typical brunch of a lamb chop and hard-boiled eggs. He then left the hotel sometime in mid-afternoon to meet up with a group of French writers and other individuals hanging out at his favorite cocktail hour haunt, the Calisea American Bar near the Paris Opera. After champagne cocktails, Wilde headed for dinner at some of the most fashionable restaurants in the city, including the Regent's Café, the Café de Paris, and the Café de la Paix. He then gravitated to any number of other cafes, sometimes by himself, where he chatted up anyone in his proximity with lengthy stories and anecdotes, frequently spending time alone to avoid returning to his down-at-the-heels hotel room, a reminder of his faded economic and social standing. Always a heavy drinker, Wilde drank even more excessively than ever, sending his accommodating innkeeper to fetch his favorite and very expensive Corvassier at 28 francs a bottle, four and five times a week. That alcoholism ran in his family was underlined when his brother died on March 13, 1899, a broken-down and destitute alcoholic, estranged for many years from his brother, who barely acknowledged his fully expected passing. Except for the occasional forays to the French or Italian Riviera funded by acquaintances and fanboys, Wilde remained in Paris, the only writing an occasional letter complaining of his financial desperation and requests for money. He sold the same theatrical outline several times to potential backers, even getting some of these investors to pay him a regular stipend as he allegedly made progress on the actual plays themselves. However, nothing of any note was ever completed. Wilde relying on this technique to raise money, but confessing to close associates that he had undoubtedly written his last meaningful work. The onset of 1900 brought the death of Wilde's antagonist, the Marcus of Queensbury, and the astonishing news that neither Alfred Douglas or his brother Percy were disinherited. By the time of his death, John Sholto Douglas was no longer wearing the mantle of defender of morality that followed the immediate aftermath of Wilde's conviction. Despite half-hearted attempts by both sons to reconcile with their father, these attempts faltered and Douglas was experiencing economic problems of his own, was also estranged from both of his ex-wives and found it necessary to sell off his estate and art collection. Dying in a London hotel room, he must have been unable to stomach the final acknowledgement of his failed relationship with his children. Alfred Douglas received approximately 15,000 pounds, his older brother considerably more. Wilde thought this to be good news, believing that somebody would now see fit to pay off at least some of the ruinous costs associated with Oscar's legal nightmare involving the Marcus. Alfred Douglas did immediately pay what he considered to be his portion of the family's financial responsibility, about a third of what was promised, but his older brother Percy was not as forthcoming. Wilde spent much of early 1900 in Italy, and especially Rome, where he met Robert Ross, who was there with his own mother. Wilde seemed fascinated by the rituals of the Catholic Church and had always threatened to convert, but ultimately resisted. Ross, always antagonistic towards Douglas, began to suggest that it was now appropriate that Douglas set up some sort of formal financial arrangement for Wilde's long-term benefit. Upon returning to Paris, Wilde over dinner suggested this idea to Douglas, the younger man actually becoming enraged and responded that Wilde resembled an old fat prostitute. 
Besides, he had no funds to spare, proclaiming that most of his money was earmarked for a stable of racehorses. In October, Wilde's health began to deteriorate markedly. Besides alcohol, Wilde also indulged in cigarettes on a habitual basis, and his ear, damaged during his imprisonment, became a chronic problem. A specialist was consulted, and he immediately diagnosed a serious inner ear infection that could only be rectified by a painful and expensive surgery. While he recuperated in his hotel room, Wilde was also beset by legal issues, his practice of selling numerous interests and the same properties finally catching up with him. His collaborator and partner on one effort, Frank Harris, had actually completed the play Love is Law on his own once it became clear that Oscar would never contribute anything meaningful. He was obliged to pay off several other investors who came forth to assert that they actually held the rights to the production. Wilde's attempt at a recuperation was comforted by the arrival in Paris of two of his closest friends, Robert Ross and Reggie Turner. They stayed with him during the day, Oscar insisting that they bring in food and champagne. Despite both his physical and financial condition, Wilde remained his typically clever self, recounting to his acquaintances that he was over 400 pounds in debt, with at least a quarter of that due to the ever-patient Duporier. Wilde commented, I am dying beyond my means. By the end of October, Wilde felt well enough to get out of bed and head to a local cafe with Ross, where he ignored his doctor's advice to not imbibe liquor, indulging in a favorite beverage, absinthe. Although Wilde now constantly talked of dying, his doctor was optimistic enough for Robert Ross to consider heading to Nice to spend some time there with his mother. Wilde pleaded with him not to leave, but Ross considered this merely dramatics and a sign of loneliness. However, by November 24th, Wilde did take a decided turn for the worse, his doctors diagnosing him with incurable encephalitis that was now infecting his brain. Only days before Wilde made his famous pronouncement to the visiting French writer, Claire de Prats, My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One of us has to go. Turner rushed a letter to Ross about Wilde's condition, and Robbie was back in the capital by November 29th. Finding Wilde borderline delirious and hearing that he had no more than days to live, Ross then went to the nearest Catholic church and brought back an Irish priest who quickly went through the official ceremony of converting Wilde to Catholicism. Ross also sent cables to Frank Harris and Alfred Douglas, warning them of Wilde's current state. By the morning of November 30th, Wilde had lost consciousness and was completely unresponsive. He died that afternoon. Wilde's funeral was sparsely attended. His internment at Bagneau, in a modest grave marked by a simple stone, was witnessed by no more than a handful of mourners, including Ross, Douglas, Reggie Turner, and Duporier, faithful to the last. Douglas and Ross already seemed intent on vying for the role of chief mourner. History would look kindly on Ross, who spent the rest of his life attempting to rebuild Wilde's literary legacy as Wilde's executor and also address the writer's financial bankruptcy. He also published an edited version of Wilde's letter to Lord Douglas, removing any of the bitterness expressed directly to Bosey, as well as any references to the Queensberry family. This 1905 publication was entitled De Profundis, Latin for From the Depths. Several edited versions would follow, but the complete version compiled from the original manuscript donated by Ross to the British Museum would not appear until 1962. Lord Alfred Douglas's erratic and frequently bizarre life continued quite publicly until 1945. 
Douglas eventually married and bitterly renounced his relationship with Wilde and homosexuality specifically. When a brief biography of Wilde was produced that contained specifics about Douglas's relationship with Wilde and the negative role Douglas played in Wilde's demise in last years, Bosey sued the author, Arthur Ransom, who had spoken with Ross during his research. Having destroyed the copy of De Profundis that Ross sent to him, Douglas was unaware that its contents basically verified that he had acted shamefully during this episode. Much of the contents of the actual unexpurgated letter read in open court. Douglas lost this case, as well as a case in which he was found to have libeled Winston Churchill over Churchill's role during wartime as a cabinet minister, Douglas receiving a sentence of six months in prison. Douglas's marriage was troubled, and he separated from his wife on several occasions, only bound together by the difficulties facing their only child and son, who spent most of his adult life in mental institutions. Douglas died in 1945 in very modest circumstances, any remnants of his fortune long gone. And despite a prolific writer of journalism and poetry, his main legacy today is his responsibility for Oscar Wilde's demise. Robert Ross's belief that Wilde's literary reputation would eventually be reconstituted occurred faster than even he anticipated. By the beginning of the 20th century, various critical analysis and biographies and accounts of Wilde's life appeared to great interest. His plays never really disappeared for any length of time. Their popularity in British regional theater continued, and all of Wilde's theatrical works returned to popularity internationally as the century progressed. By 1908, Ross had successfully repurchased all of Wilde's copyrights that were sold off during Oscar's bankruptcy proceedings. These rights were then returned to Wilde's sons, Wilde's older son, Cyril Holland, was killed by a German sniper during World War I. Wilde's other son, Vivian Holland, worked as a translator and writer and wrote an autobiography, detailing his life as a child of one of the most famous figures in British history. Ross also transferred Wilde's remains from Bagneau to the more prestigious Parisian cemetery at Père Lachaise, already the resting place of Chopin, Balzac, and Moliere, and eventually Sarah Bernhardt, Edith Piaf, and Jim Morrison. Ross also collected funds for a magnificent sculpted abstract sphinx-like creature, requesting that the artist Jacob Epstein include a compartment for the internment of Ross's own ashes, a request that was not fulfilled until 1950, 32 years after Ross's death at age 49 of a heart attack. Epstein's massive monument is perhaps too magnificent, it was repeatedly vandalized by lipstick kisses until cemetery authorities cleaned it and installed plexiglass to prevent such future vandalism. Wilde's epitaph is four lines from the Ballad of Reading Goal. And alien tears will fill for him, pity's long broken urn, for his mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn. The section of the British Criminal Law Amendment of 1885 that sent Wilde to prison was not repealed until 1967. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Oscar Wilde. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books. 
Oscar Wilde by Richard Ellman, Oscar Wilde, A Life by Matthew Sturgis, and Oscar Wilde, The Unrepentant Years by Nicholas Frankel. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.